without any experience of God's kind of personal, tangible, interactive presence, you know, left hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And very, uh, my family and community, very, very earnest about radical discipleship, wanting to live out the Bible, wanting to, you know, care for the least of these, wanting to understand and obey everything God teaches in the Bible, Jesus, especially in the New Testament, but, uh, which was, I mean, that's, that's better than not having that. But do we try to do Christian life, obedience, discipleship, and especially like trying to be a part of God's plan to save the world without the living, tangible, interactive presence of God? It was uh, pretty hard. It's a small miracle. I wonder, like, how did I even do that for 40 years? And I think it's somewhere in my spirit, the Holy Spirit, like somehow I knew this is this is right, but it was hard. It was dry. It was there was a, a whole lot of work and not a lot of joy. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Communitas podcast. Joy and I today are uh, on Zoom with Dr. Carl Lehman. Um, this is going to be a really fun, I think, episode for us and very, very informative as well. Um, we did a podcast, oh, probably a couple of months ago uh, with Tony Daniels, who has been a part of our organization for quite some time, Communitas. And we got into subjects really dealing with um, trauma and trauma response. And she suggested that we connect with Dr. Carl. So Dr. Carl, thank you so much. You're coming to us from Illinois today. And we'd love to hear just a little bit about who you are, what you do, and uh, then we can dive into some conversation. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to be here. I wish I was with you in Idaho instead of being <laughs> in, in Chicago. Um, but yes, I'm glad to be with you on Zoom. So let's see, yeah, who I am. Um, a board-certified psychiatrist. That's a part of who I am. And at, at 63, um, yeah, hopefully I haven't started to decline much yet. And uh, the asset of, you know, if you're, if you're going to go to a physician about something difficult or complicated, you know, your ideal is somebody who's about 60. You know, they've got, they've got 40,000 hours of clinical experience. Yeah. And they're still sharp. So hopefully I, uh, that, that's that kind of part of my identity of, being a board certified psychiatrist in MD, have kind of, uh, at your prime. At my prime, as far as decades, you know, four decades of clinical experience, which is part of you know just where my thoughts and all come from. Uh, another part of my identity is being a Christian, um, and that journey. Very, uh, my personal story is very closely related to why I have so much passion about what I what I do with the Emmanuel approach. Yeah. So I did almost forty years as a Christian. Um, without any experience of God's kind of personal, tangible, interactive presence, you know, left hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And very, uh, my family and community, very, very earnest about radical discipleship, wanting to live out the Bible, wanting to, you know, care for the least of these, wanting to understand and obey everything God teaches in the Bible, Jesus, especially in the New Testament, but, uh, which was, I mean, that's, that's better than not having that. But do we trying to do Christian life, obedience, discipleship, and especially like trying to be a part of God's plan to save the world without the living, tangible, interactive presence of God? Um, it was it was uh, pretty hard. Um, it, it, being really honest, uh, it was hard to see the good news. Um, to, it was hard to feel the good news. Um, and I, I somehow it, it's a small miracle that I, it, it, in my perception, looking back. It's a small miracle. I wonder, like, how did I even do that for 40 years? And I think it's somewhere in my spirit, the Holy Spirit, like, somehow I knew this is, this is right, but it was hard and it was dry. And it was, there was a, a whole lot of work and not a lot of joy. And I never shared my faith once in that 40 years. Um, I, I knew I was supposed to be doing that. I felt guilty for not doing that. But at some level, I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to convince anybody this is good news. Hmm. Yeah. Work your butt off, make piles of sacrifices, you know, give all you, I mean, give all you have to the Lord working the poor, um, be a radical disciple. And the upside is like, you're going to get a big reward eventually someday, 50 years from now, you know, which that doing that every day for years and years kind of is, is just hard to do. Yeah. So 
that was that was the first 40 years of my personal faith journey. And in the last 20 years, uh, as actually, uh, again, closely related to why I'm so passionate about this is that my own life, that you know, using the tools that Dr. Wilder and I developed with the Emmanuel approach and kind of applied brain science with faith to uh, help help people uh, experience the tangible, living, interactive, personal friendship presence of Jesus, like uh, an actual interaction back and forth and how to help your brain actually participate in that and, and have a, su a subjective experience of Jesus's tangible, personal, interactive friendship presence. And that has increasingly, over the last 20 years, become the center and foundation of my life and my faith and everything I do in my Christian walk. Um, so that's like the I, I, I hope that big picture makes some sense there, but that's that's my journey, and that's because that has transformed my own experience so profoundly. That's a part of why I believe in it so passionately, passionately, and, and want to share it with others. Um, it's not some theory I heard. I did not, it's not some little seminar I went to about how to you know. I'm working for some company, and I you go to the little training seminar about this is why our tennis shoes are so great. Go out and sell them. This is my own life for the last twenty years has been completely transformed in every every good way by these things. And I want everybody else in the world to have that. Oh. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Um, our, let's talk about brain science for, for a second. Uh, yeah. I have been a person of faith all of my life and I've had this, what I now know to be a profound gift, which is I can't think of a time where I ever did not experience the presence of God. And the assumption that I made as a person of faith, even in full-time vocational ministry, was that this was just an aspect that every person of faith had. Like they, they always are, you know. Um so it, and but I like you in a sense that I had to have the intellectual assent as well. So you had the intellectual assent, but you didn't have the emotional, I guess, or um or, or deep in heart kind of sense of that. So what does brain science have to say about that? Why, why do, why do I have that? And why did you not have it? Well, so one piece is there's some serious mystery there Yeah. about, uh, there's a, um, my perception is that there are mind spirit variables and like there's, there's the brain, there's the brain science and that piece I actually understand more than most folks. Um, but there's also a mind spirit piece and there's variables there that are to me, you know, we have so understanding. I mean, there's a lot of good truth in the Bible and the uh, and your own experience of interacting with the Holy Spirit over years of what, as well as with the written word. There's a lot of stuff we understand, but like um, physical healing, for example, you know, I have close friends and colleagues who've been in the middle of that, who've seen I me mean, as a, as a physician, I've evaluated, you know, some of the stories they tell. And it's like, there's, this is a crazy miraculous healing you know for example if somebody has uh several inches of a bone that's uh osteomyelitis bone infection one of the worst things you can get in medicine there's it's really impossible to permanently cure you fight it with with antibiotics for the rest of the person's life if they get that and if you're in a third world country that'll just kind of it just melts a bone it just kind of slowly but slowly eats a bone and just turns it into liquid i mean you, so if you have osteomyelitis a bone infection like for example in your leg for years you'll, you'll, uh, there's a, like, there's a big chunk of your bone that's just missing. It's gone. It's melted. And you can see it on the x-ray. I mean, there's like, here's an x-ray of the guy's leg. There's a, you know, this many, there's like four or five inches of his bone that's not there. And one of my friends and colleagues you know, prayed for that. And the guy walks and he goes back to the hospital, I guess the x-ray, which is like is normal. And the doctor is arguing with him. Like, no, this can't be the second, like this hat, like, the, the normal x-ray has to be the earlier one because this is impossible. Nobody ever, mm -hmm. there's no possible way you can have four inches of your bone melted by osteomyelitis and then have it be normal. That's not possible. And the guy standing is like, I'm standing in front of you. Like this is the lay. I mean, it was like sort of a bizarre scenario where he's his, you can look at his leg. He can walk on his leg. You can poke his leg with your thumb and feel the bone is there. You can look at the x-ray and the doctor's just like, oh, this, I cannot accept the reality in front of me because it's impossible. Mm -hmm. So the physical healing is a real, I'm, I'm utterly convinced as a physician with a, you know, bachelor's degrees in chemistry and physics and biology. Um, 
the miracles occur. And there's some principles there about, you know, for faith and gifting and all there's some, there's patterns that you're like, that kind of makes sense. But there's also a mystery where the same healing minister, this you know, actually he's passed away now, Francis, but I don't know if you ever read his stuff or are aware of him. Um, but he was internationally known as a, as a leader in, in physical healing. And he would pray for a hundred people. And some of them would have miraculous dramatic healing. Some of them would have minor healing. Some of them had nothing would happen. Some of the patterns he would recognize, but others that, you know, um, there's a lot of mystery and I have a kind of a crying virus thing I've struggled with for years. And I had the privilege of being with him and his family at his home, you know, a couple of years before he died. And I, he and his wife and his kids are all praying for my healing. And they have done that a number of times. Um, and I can perceive no benefit. And we've talked about, I mean, I've read all his books. I've earnestly worked on what could possibly be in the way of me being able to receive physical healing. And we had that that conversation, and I just asked him, say, this was when he was like 90 years old. So he'd been a leader in this field for 50 years, for 60 years. And like, Francis, so what do you, how do you understand like the fact that I've had prayer from this particular issue from many of the leading people in the world hundreds of times, whoever, and he just paused, he says, Carl, there's still a lot of mystery. Uh. And this is the guy who's like one of the world leaders in the field, you know, for 60 years with a PhD and like three of the most read books on healing in the world. Yeah. And he's just like, you know, there's still a lot of mystery. So the piece where, you know, so for 40 years, I've heard people like you describing, oh, I can feel God's presence or I can, you know, they, uh, like the Holy Spirit renewal. Yeah. I can just feel the love of the father. They're laughing, you know, they're crying. They, we go to the, you know, prayer meetings and there they can feel, I, I can see Jesus. I can feel Jesus. I can feel the love of Jesus. I can set like telling all these stories. And I read the books. I heard, heard the testimonies. I had people around me. I had friends. I had colleagues. I had, you know, people I knew and spent time with every day who had that experience. Um, I go to the conferences where everybody around me is having that experience. I did that for 25 years. Huh. I got, I got prayer specifically for you know any tangible experience of God's subjective presence, like thousands of times mm. over 25 years. And nothing. Oh. Wow. So, and we get mystery. There's books written on this. So there's books written on the subject. There's mystery. But a piece of it is that is, uh, in my own journey, like there can be traumatic memories there. Um, now in retrospect, for example, uh, as a kid in a radical discipleship church where they're passionate about trying to save the world and it hadn't occurred to any of the adults, you know, a lot of the content we're talking about is really kind of R rated. Uh, you're not for it, right? But, but yeah. talking about you know, kids who are, you know, you know, kids who are starving to death. I mean, like, they were trying to be a part of help with all the horrible stuff happening in the world. And it didn't occur to anybody. You know, the four-year-olds probably shouldn't be looking at these pictures of napalm burned babies in Vietnam that were thinking about adopting or whatever. Right. So uh, just no maliciousness, but they totally didn't think about how their radical discipleship and, and things like, you know, Jesus is hyperbolic language to try to challenge 25-year-olds. You know, if your eye causes you to sin, it's like it's more important that if there's anything between your heart and me, there's nothing more important. If your eye is causing you to sin and and resulting in a barrier between your heart and me, plug it out. I mean, that's like, oh, as an adult, like, yeah, but he's, he's just saying there's no way to overstate how important it is to get rid of anything that's between your heart and me. Mm-hmm. When you're a four-year-old, that's like, oh crap! I mean, mm-hmm. thousands of times in my childhood, I'm thinking, I am a weak failure as a Christian because I still have two eyes. I mean, yeah. I know that you know, I'm a, I was a boy, I was a teenager. I mean, I I struggled with you know, just sexual fantasy and desire all thousands of times, and that like, there are lots of ways in which my experience of Christianity had there were lots of unintentional toxic dynamics that were scary and confusing 
Yeah. So I had um, a lot of implicit memory, a lot of emotional memory. Are your people familiar with implicit memory? Yeah. The phenomenon of, yeah, like explicit memory is, oh, what did you have for breakfast? And implicit memory, it's emotional memory, and you're not consciously aware of it. But old memories, the emotion content can kind of come forward and affect your experience in the present. And you're not consciously aware of where it's really coming from. Right. So anchored in a lot of those experiences, I had all kinds of, uh, even while my left hemisphere knew, oh, God is, God is loving or whatever. There were, there were kid memory places. It's like this God character is crazy, terrifying. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you, you definitely do to do what he says because you don't want to burn in hell for eternity. But wow, this is one crazy, unpredictable, like he says and does crazy stuff that scare the crap out of me. Yeah. Huh. You know, if there's kin places in your heart that have memory anchor pl- th- perceptions of God being crazy, unpredictable, scary, dangerous, whatever, that might kind of hinder in some unconscious place. You're kind of actually welcoming, yeah, I really do want you to be with me in some tangible way. Right. right. So there's, there's things like that, you know, implicit memory content from your own personal history, I think can. Well, I actually, I know that I know that can hinder your relation with God in all kinds of ways. In fact, you know, one of the missions of my life is to help people find and move those blockages. And that's actually a, a big part of the Emmanuel approach is there are simple tools that often work. And if they don't, you say, okay, wait, there's something in the way. There's a blockage. And a, a big part of the process is for the folks who it doesn't work right away, you say, okay, well, what's in the way? Lord, help us find it, move it. And almost 100%. If somebody is persistent with troubleshooting, you will always find, oh, look at this. This makes sense. Mm-hmm. Here's, you know, some terrifying, here, here's a, some pastor I had when I was five, you know, eight years old, who was scary, presented God as a terrifying, um, kind of crazy um, cult leader. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Why on earth would I want to allow them to be in the same room with me? And you find that room, use tools to resolve that trauma, that distorted perception of God's presence is resolved. And then when they have agreement inside about actually welcoming God's presence, oh my gosh, I can perceive him now. Mm. So brain science there, I mean, I, I'm, uh, I'm convinced that a part of my journey was that I had a lot, uh, a lot of those subtle memory anchored implicit distortions about God's character and heart that tangled up my my ability to actually welcome and perceive his subjective personal loving presence wow. that's a real good example of brain science memory stuff implicit memory huge impacts on your actual kind of walk it out on the street daily usable faith and experience of god's presence yeah wow thank you thank you for sharing that that's uh that's it's profound I, i'm curious from a broader cultural perspective, perhaps it's because we are better educated about brain science uh, and things such as trauma. Uh, It seems though, in my 60 years of living, that we're at a place right now where um, maybe the awareness has gotten to the point where it seems like this is a struggle for everybody, right? Whether it's trauma or, and we're also seeing in the younger generation, what I think is higher levels of anxiety, higher levels of uh, despair and depression, uh, those kinds of things. Now we could say, yeah, it's because of our devices and it may be, um, but is it because we are more aware of these things that we're noticing more of it or is, is there an increase? Yeah. Well, so the, the technology, like the, um, cell phones, the, Children now interact more with their screen and TikTok and videos, and that lots of kids will spend their whole afternoon watching movies on their phone. I mean, you can just sit in your bedroom and watch whatever the three or four most popular movies are on the screen. Whereas when we were kids, you had to actually spend money and go to a theater, spend money we didn't have, and we went to three movies a year in our family. Um, And that's just that's a new piece that's never been that has never been present before in the history of humankind mm-hmm. where millions of children spend a large part of their childhood instead of actually interacting with other other human beings on the playground I mean when we were kids like well no hey my boy should I do on board go to the playground I mean like you you go down the block 
and actually interact with other living human beings with faces um, and your, your right hemisphere, spend a lot of hours during your childhood practicing actually being a relational human being and playing games and negotiating with the kids in the park. And then, I mean, just, just that's got to, I mean, neurologically, I can't see any way in which that's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. That there's a, uh, a huge amount of childhood that usually got get spent learning neurological right hemisphere relational skills by interacting with other human beings. And there's thousands of those hours now that are watching a screen, watching a movie, interacting in TikTok and all those different social media things, which there's some social interaction there. But as far as the real time back and forth, looking at your face, right hemisphere stuff, there's a, it's, it's not the same. So one of my perceptions as a psychiatrist, you know, as an MD whose specialty is brain emotions and psychology, it makes sense that uh, a part of the young, I mean, the, the huge increase in depression and anxiety in the young, I, I can't, I can't imagine how that the device, the, the medical, uh, the digital devices, cell phones, movies, TikTok, social media, taking the place of actual human interaction and, and learning from your community, your parents, your family, your friends, other human beings who will teach you the actual skills, the right hemisphere, relational brain skills of how to interact with other human beings. That feels like a big deal. Now, the the trauma side of it, um, being more aware of it, I, th- I think, yeah, the average claim person is much more aware of, oh my goodness, uh, you're triggered. We, are, we, we know more how to recognize it. And I, one of my books is, you know, half the book is about how to recognize when you're triggered, when there's implicit memory that's come forward, when old pain is being stirred up and that's affecting your perception in the present, that's affecting your relational mm-hmm. brain, that's turning off the part of your brain that does relationships. And there's, we understand a lot of that a whole lot more. I think if you look back at history, or you can say, hmm, probably when they treated women and children like cattle, when they literally, you know, it was, if you beat your kid or your wife to death, I mean, people might frown, but it was kind of like, hey, that's bad, you know, don't do that. Um, but, you know, they were your property and you broke your property. I mean, that's kind of stupid. You're, it's like a, a waste of resources. You're going to have to go buy, you know, you're going to have to go get new ones. That, that's a pretty, I mean, there's a whole lot of the world where that was kind of normal. Mm-hmm. Or most of human history. I mean, that kind of really kind of crazy utilitarian, if you were bigger and stronger like the men, you kind of ruled the world and the poor women and children and animals just kind of had to go suck lemons. And it was, I mean, yeah. I, I just think you can look back on, you know, the dark ages, you know, plundering, where the, the normal behavior with warring nations was, if you win, you kill or blind or castrate all the men or, or make them all slaves. I mean, you mean you just, just as far as like, um, to discourage other enemies, you know, you just line them up right there and, and just every 10th man, you cut his head off. Just, just that's where decimate came from. Just mm-hmm. kind of teach your enemies a lesson. And then what's left is, you know, get sold as slaves and the women, you know, get and children just get plundered as property. Um, that was, that was kind of the, the normal way that, that conflict was managed, you know, in much of the world for much of history. So it's hard to, it's hard to convince me that there wasn't as much trauma. Mm, yeah. Right. And, and, and medical, I mean, before we understood infectious illness, where, uh, not just penicillin, but just realizing, oh, germs, wash your hands before you eat. Don't pee in the river upstream of where the village gets its water supply. So if you know, one person gets cholera, you know, in two weeks, everybody else has it and, you know, 50% of children died of infectious illnesses before the age of five mm-hmm. for most of human history. So that's kind of a big deal. That's traumatic. Um, that's, I mean, if you think, oh, wow, the average parents, half their children died of infectious illnesses by the age of five, pretty much everywhere, pretty much for the whole world, pretty much for the entire history until the last couple hundred years. That's, that's, that's got to be a bit of trauma. I mean, so the fact that there's more trauma now is hard to, hard to, it's, that's hard for me to buy that one. Yeah. But we're way more aware of it. And our standards are kind of increasing as far as what kind of behavior we want to 
expect from people in society. And the good news piece of that is, oh, and there's something we can do about it. You can learn to recognize when you're when you have trauma, when your trauma is getting stirred up, when you're triggered, when implicit memory has come forward, when you when your old pain has got triggered forward and it's turning off your relational circuits and it's affecting your relationship with your wife and your children, your family and your colleagues and your employees, your employer. That mean every relationship you have in the in the world, you can recognize that. You can learn to recognize that, and there are specific things you can do about it. So, I mean, that's way huge good news. Um, I don't know. That's a bunch of thoughts in response to your question there. Good question. Yeah, no, that's a, yeah, just getting that reminder of history. You know, it's uh, because you do want to look for, I think we want to look for the easy solution. Like what's causing this now? Um, and this isn't a new problem. This is a generational problem. What about, what about generational trauma? Is, is that in our DNA? Well, so the, the DNA piece, I mean, there's fascinating research about like if a whole country was in a, went through a famine, there's ways in which that actually can affect your DNA. Um, boy, without getting into all kinds of fascinating science about how there's mitochondria in the egg that have DNA that is trans, I mean, there's all kinds of fascinating science there. Yeah. But there are ways in which even without modifying your actual gene, gene coding, you can affect you can affect the what gets activated. There's a whole field called epigenetics. I'm not sure if you're if you've heard that term. Mm -hmm. it's, so part of the science, gene science, is what's actually in your DNA, in your double helix, you know, in your gene code. But then a great big piece of the another part of the picture is what gets activated or not. And a, a huge a data point that you guys and your listeners will all you'll, you'll never forget this simple huge data point. Well, a lot of mental illnesses and big ones like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, I mean, some of the biggest, most severe, most genetically influenced mental illnesses that are the most strongly linked to just like your grandparents had this, your parents, I mean, it's, it's, it's in your family, you know, one or two of your parents have this, whatever, even identical twins. So you have identical twins. They have the identical DNA. If one of those twins gets schizophrenia or, bi or bipolar disorder, you know, two of the most genetically linked illnesses that we know of. So if it was, if it was primarily genetic, you think, okay, the other identical twin is going to be the right. Like if, if one twin has blue eyes, what color are the other twins eyes? Blue. Sure. Uh, that's, that's kind of simple. Like your average grade school person realizes if you got identical twins, you know, they're going to be the same. Identical twins. If the first twin has schizophrenia or bipolar, only half, 50% of the other twin will express the illness. Mm. And they've got the same DNA. And that means environmental, developmental, tra unresolved trauma, other factors affecting which genes get expressed or not. That's not a small effect. I mean, that exact same DNA and only half of the other identical twin will express the illness. That means that other factors expressing how the what what uh, yeah what genes are expressed, how the DNA expresses itself, is a big deal. And there's research showing that generational phenomena, what happened to your grandmother during the famine in you know in Ireland, affects the way your genes are expressed. So there's like there's there's a DNA biological component of generational stuff that we know about. Fascinating Potter woman. You could talk. That's if you had an expert in that field, like that's about what I know, what you just heard. Yeah. Um, but you could, if someone does that research, you could spend a whole podcast just, wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's spiritual phenomena that's more mysterious to me, but I've been involved in cases where it's like, it sure seems like um, we kind of had a Holy Spirit sense of guidance about a, a spiritual generational factor. And we specifically prayed about that. And this person's struggle with fill in the blank, alcoholism, panic, whatever. Yeah. After we prayed in the, the authority of Jesus to cut off any spiritual generational fat pattern of you know, panic or alcoholism or whatever the problem was, hmm. that, you know, Jeff here says, wow, I, I feel like a third of the energy or half the energy of my struggle with, you know, again, fill in the blank, panic, alcoholism, pornography, whatever. When we pray to break that, I and mean, that's been a pattern, my father, my brother, my grandfather, that's, and when we pray to break that spiritual pattern, 
something shifted and the battle has been less difficult. Mm -hmm. So that kind of makes sense. And then the piece where the brain science to me comes in the most is, they talk about the sins of the father is passed down to the third and fourth generation. That's interesting. Like, wow, people ponder that verse. Yeah. But the way your right hemisphere works, okay. Uh, and the blessings are easy, actually, or even, well, either bad or good. If grandpa and grandma were unusually mature, healthy, emotionally present, loving, the relational service were on, they had good maturity skills. I mean, because there's, um, aside from like your, gen your genetics and your trauma, a lot of relational stuff is skills. Like you have to learn to play to type. You have to learn to play the piano. There's things you have to learn as a skill. And it's not about knowledge. And it's not about, okay, well, you're a strong, uh, genetically you're blessed as a, as a man. Your body could play tennis very well. But unless you actually learn the skills of how to play tennis, just, just having the right body does not make you be able to play tennis. Mm -hmm. So relationally, there's skill stuff. There's maturity skills. Your right hemisphere, there's a whole big chunk of your brain whose job it is to learn the skills of how do you resolve conflict? How do you express a concern in a relational kind way? How do you meet a new person like kids in the playground? How do you, how do you just, how do you introduce yourself to a stranger? Some a new family just moved in from Tennessee. You know, how do we welcome those kids onto the playground? How do you, how do you negotiate the rules of a game? How do you, yeah, how do you negotiate a contract? How do you, there's a huge portfolio of skill stuff about relationships that you have to learn. And the biggest way, the most effective way, the way that your right hemisphere brain, your relational maturity skill brain, the number one way your, your brain wants to learn those skills is show me what it looks like and then coach me while I practice. Mm -hmm. So if you have a grandpa and a grandma who have good skills, high capacity, they have a, so their, their whole portfolio is strong for maturity skills for that, right? The right hemisphere, relational skills, the way they, they can do relationships. Yeah, there's a hundred details about how they do relationships that are strong and healthy and life-giving. You grew up in that family and it, just for free, I mean, your right hemisphere is just watching them, your mirror neurons. I mean, you can, you can, uh, there's things you have to actually practice and they can coach you to practice, but there's a bunch of your, like your brain will, be watching and copying and downloading whether you like it or not. And if your grandparents are doing a whole bunch of things right, next mom and dad's generation, well, that's just what my, that's the way grandma and grandpa did it. How did you know how to, how do you, how do you know how to resolve conflicts with things? How do you know how to deal with a difficult situation? Like, how did you know how to do that? When the, like, when that couple started, like, I had no idea. I was like, oh my goodness, let's run away. How did you know how to do that? Well, I just saw mom and dad do it. That's the way, I mean, Mom and dad were leaders in our church, and I I saw them handle conflicts like like that in a bunch of varieties. I, I you just get that for free. Mm -hmm. You grew up in a in a family or a community where your your parents, your elder community, is modeling healthy behavior, healthy brain skills. Your right hemisphere mirror neurons will watch that and copy it and download it. And especially if you're if you're wanting to be like your mom and dad, and they're coaching you to help learn and practice it, that's the whole package. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what it looks like. I get to watch it. My, neural, my mirror neurons are kind of watching you and copying you. And you're encouraging me, hey, son, this is where I want you to be. And I'm saying like, I act, yeah, I want to be like that. I, I, like mom and dad, I like the way they do things. That's the way that, that's the package the way it's supposed to be. So what if you live in a toxic family, that yeah. toxic community where, oh, well, we, have, we, we disrespect our women. You know, we molest our children. We, we, we hit kids if they disobey. I mean, and you can do the same thing with your wife if, you, if you're angry enough. You see that last, that's the way it is. That's the way you do that. That's the way my community does it. That's the way my uncles do it. That's the way my dad does it. Bad or good, your brain, like you, uh, there's a big generational piece where that, those skills and patterns, the whole big part of your right hemisphere, maturity, relational brain skill stuff, that gets passed down from generation to generation in ways that we now understand a whole lot. I mean, we actually know a whole lot of that brain science about how that works. Yeah, see, they can have so I hear you. Yeah. I hear you saying it, it's a lot of practice, whether that practice is in good patterns or bad patterns. <laughs> that's how we're learning. It's both watching and modeling. 
mm-hmm. and then practicing it. And you, okay. oh, those are the two pieces that you want. Mm-hmm. Same as any, any sport. Freshman basketball team. Okay, Jeff, senior, our one of our starting seniors. Show the freshman how to do a layup. Okay, guys, watch. Okay, do three or four of those. Okay, so that's how I go. That's how I want you to do it. And now you guys practice, and they practice for a while. And the coach says, "Okay, now, Jeff, you do it again." Hey, guys, can you see? Like all of you guys are. This is what you all are. Most of you are doing wrong. Now, see how that. So that specific piece we just saw, how he does something different there. Okay, I want you guys to try harder to do it that way. Or you know that. That's like we all know that. Oh, that's the way you learn to play tennis. That's the way you learn to play the piano. That's the way you learn. Fill in the blank. That's the way you learn to be a doctor. You know, you're in medical school. Okay, Carl, watch the residents and the staff surgeons do this, whatever surgery. Um, and you watch it a bunch and it's okay. Now, I want you to try it and I'll be right here and coach you. And then you practice repeatedly with coaching about, okay, you know, the, the little bit more of this, a little bit less of that. So you got the, the watching and then practice with coaching. That's the way your brain wants to learn. And you can sure see how the family and the community, yeah, another, one of the many reasons why family and community are so huge is that's one of the biggest places where behavioral patterns, skills, health gets transmitted. Mm-hmm. And if you have a healthy family and community that's deliberately passing down good things, especially, and if you're aware of this consciously, oh, and we're going to be deliberate about it. We're going to deliberately model to our children what we're doing, and we're going to explain what we're doing, and then we're going to coach them to practice it. like. If that stuff is intact in a family and a community, that's a huge deal. Big deal. So it just begs the question, and probably a little bit too simplistic of one, but often that isn't the case. <laughs> Either the child doesn't want to pick up what's modeled, or more often that the family and the community isn't isn't modeling healthy and well behaviors. Like, so then what? What do you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is. Um, so what you just described is a big part of our current world. Okay. Right? I mean, yeah. you, I mean, think about it. Uh, if I think a while, I can think, okay, I can, if I think about it, I can think of a handful of marriages that I know personally that are thriving and think, okay, I, 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 those are marriages that you'd want to be like. And I can much more easily think of a whole bunch of marriages where like, okay, well, they're trying. I mean, they're both committed, but it's, not particularly inspiring. Mm. And I can think of all of marriages is like, oh my gosh, uh, they're not making it. And they don't. I mean, that's why you have like a 50% right. divorce rate. And whether you, whether you just go to the grocery store or your church or your neighborhood, you can see a whole lot of folks that just aren't doing very well. Families, parenting, and you watch parents, you're just like, oh, oh, no, just, oh, oh, you, oh, I watch people yeah, in, the, in the grocery store, in the playground, whatever, the way they interact with their children. I'm thinking, Oh, that's that's so hurtful and unnecessary. And you could you could change that behavior you don't like in ways that would be so much gentler, so much more relational, so much more life giving. Mm-hmm. So yes, the reality is we currently have a, quite a bit of a mess mm-hmm. where lots of parents and communities are not doing a good job of modeling and teaching healthy relational behaviors and skills. Lots of kids are not. And I seldom see a kid. Like the families I know that are healthiest, where the mom and dad are really modeling the best stuff, most of those kids, you know, by the time they're even three or five, they're like, they're, they, they admire their parents. They want to be like them and they will do anything to, to please their mom and dad, to follow their mom and dad. I mean, when the mom and dad are really being life giving and relational and loving and, and they are they're pro, they're providing a life giving loving home where kids want to be. In fact, neighborhood kids want to go. They want to spend time in their house. Mm-hmm. You know, their friends and their other kids in the neighborhood don't want to go home. I mean, other kids in the neighborhood spend time in that family's yard or their at their home, and they don't want to leave. Mm-hmm. So, to me, I so you know, once you get a, a teenager, and there's been you know. Lots of things that have not been ideal and it's a whole lot more complicated, but just for how to help. I mean, to me, I would, I would start my emphasis on how can we help families and communities model and coach well, mm-hmm. like that's a, a great big part of, um, if you know, Tony 
Daniels, you probably are aware of Jim Wilder and Life Model. And that's such a, such a big part of their vision for the world is deliberately, how can we like thrive? Um, Chris, Cors Chris and Jen Corsi with Thrive, Dr. Wilder with Life Model. You know, a big part of what they do very explicitly is how can we deliberately teach parents, families, and communities to model and teach and coach healthy relational skills, not just content, not oh, what should you believe, what are you supposed to say is true with your, right, with your left hemisphere, but helping the right hemisphere, how do we help communities and families model and coach learning and practice for healthy relational skills? And that's, like the, that's a big part of their mission for existence. Yeah. And what part of where I fit in there is with, with Emmanuel, um, you know, earlier question about the brain, how come you can't remember a time in your life when you weren't aware of God's tangible subjective presence? And I did 40 years of Christianity with zero of that, even in spite of earnestly pursuing it for 25 years of that Christian life. Yeah. You have the trauma and the implicit memory and all the blockages. That's a part of the picture. There's also simple things about um, the more we understand the brain, the more you can cooperate with it. So like a part of the Emmanuel approach is, oh, if you think of a positive memory, you remember a, po a previous positive experience and deliberately connect with it until you feel grateful. If you do that, that will turn on the part of your brain that does relationships. I mean, just this, it's, the way it's, it's the way it's wired that if you connect with a positive memory until you can feel appreciation, you, it's impossible to do that without having your relational circuits come on. Interesting. Flip side is if you do that, that will bring your relational circuits on. This almost as directly as if you open your eyes, your visual cortex lights up. I mean, there's just a neurological connection. Yeah. If you close your eyes and you can, if your head is in a spec scanner and you can see the living brain operating, you close your eyes and your visual cortex kind of goes dark and you open your eyes and your visual system is working and you can see your visual cortex light up. Hmm. Similarly, if you connect with a positive memory and deliberately struck gratitude, the relational circuits part of your brain turns on, lights up, or if it's already working, it, it, it activates more strongly. Mm. So that relational part of your brain has been designed to be in the middle of relationships, like with other people, parents, families, every, any other human beings. As far as we can tell, that same part of your brain is in the middle of your relationship with God. You know, that the, the relational brain circuits that God gave us to other humans seem to be in the middle of our subjective kind of ex experiential connection with God. Huh. So if we deliberately coached a person to learn how to, like, here we're going to, I mean, I have 20 minutes. I'm going to try to have some quiet time to connect with God. If I spend the first five minutes remembering examples of God's goodness in my life, mm -hmm. I deliberately focusing on them and connecting with them until I feel grateful, that's going to actually put my brain in a better place to connect with God. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Another one is subtle stuff. Um, this, this is, this is actually was huge for me. Part of, this is one of the brain science ones, you know, getting rid of trauma, um, old painful experiences. that were the anchors for distorted perceptions of God's character and heart. That was a big deal for me. I mean, that was, that was a part of what finally moved for me after trying things for 25 years, and reading all the books on why can't you connect with God and, and none of that other stuff worked. I found and moved a bunch of those memory anchor distorted perceptions. That was a part of, the, of what worked. Another part for me is that my experience has been subtle and it's getting slowly um, more tangible, but less subtle over years. But it's still just my brain seems to be set on my perceptions of God's presence tend to be subtle. My sense of thoughts from the Lord tend to be subtle. Uh, even when I have a a pretty powerful experience on this on the very on the uh, kind of bell curve of intensity, my perceptions tend to be subtle. Hey, well, the parts of there's there's parts of your brain on the in the front on the right and the left that are in the middle of being able to feel that something is important and recognize what it means. And there's fascinately interesting research about this where um, you can have something in your internal in your internal awareness, and it's actually significant. And you'll kind of just walk right past it. Mm -hmm. If you're praying, listening, discerning, I mean, just in, in a hundred different settings. And if you have a couple trying to figure out uh, where do we want to go on vacation this summer, 
there'll be little thoughts that come to you and you'll kind of be disagreeing. And Jeff wants to go to Indiana to visit his uncle and Joy wants to go to Idaho to go trout fishing and you're tangled about, you know, whatever. And you and you, and there's a certain voice to your conversation that seems stuck and you can't figure out why. Okay. And if I was there with you, two of you, I could coach you on specific tools to be aware of subtle things. You kind of slow down and you use some of these, some of the brain tools. You goes, Oh, Holla, every time Jeff mentions Indiana, I just have this little flicker of, you know, some negative, you know, growing up there when I was in junior high, that was horrible. I hate Indiana. I hate everything to do with Indiana. I hate that town in Indiana. In fact, I'm going to, if we go to that place to visit your uncle, I might bump into some of the girls that were horrible to me every day of my entire, oh, could that be involved? Could that have any influence on what we're doing? And that might have been just a little, a little flicker of an image or a thought, the kind of periphery of your internal awareness. And often those kind of things happen and we just walk right past them all the time. Yeah. Your average discernment, a conversation with your spouse, trying to figure out which, which school to send your child to. And any, they, any effort you're trying to make, okay, I'm having listening time. Lord, help me to perceive your presence. I'm having my quiet time. I'm praying. I, you know, uh, any kind of, I want to experience, I want to have a, I want to have a subjective experience of your tangible presence, Lord. For someone like me, who those things tend to be subtle, if you, there's certain simple tools I'll explain in two minutes. If I use them, my success rate of catching the subtle stuff, recognizing it, um, spotting it and realizing, oh, that's, I can feel that that's important. And I, and I actually understand what, where it fits in. That goes way up with a simple little brain science thing. Hmm. And it goes, I, I miss piles of that. I walk right past them and think this isn't working. So the little simple brain science thing is, uh, it's parts of your brain, the front of the right and the front of the left that are in the middle of feeling that it's important and recognizing what that means. And it's fast. There's fascinating case studies of something that's, um, well, there's some of the most dramatic things is like, if you have a tumor, if you, if a person gets a brain tumor in one of those spots, this is actually a, a famous case study hmm. where you could ask him cognitively. And so this guy who has, he had this brain injury where it, it, he had a, a, a tumor that squashed the part of his brain. It was supposed to be in the middle of feeling that something's the feeling that it's important. So he would skip his daughter, his daughter's birthday party to just to, Oh, he'd be driving home and Oh, there's a $2 discount on haircuts. Hey, well, I'll say $2. And he couldn't feel that his daughter's birthday party was more important than saving $2 on his haircut. Mm -hmm. And if you stopped him and asked him to analyze it logically, he could say, well, yeah, I can see. Like his left hemisphere could explain the logic. But the part of his brain that was supposed to be able to feel, oh my goodness, I can, saving $2 is much less important than being at home for my daughter's birthday party. And that part of your brain if you interact with another person's face, like uh, whatever I'm thinking or talking about, if I, I kind of scan my internal awareness and I try to get words for what's happening, and that's that'll, the part on the left side that helps me wind it up, and then I describe it to you, I'm with another human being, and I'm interacting with another human being to describe what's happening. Those two simple little things, pay, deliberately paying attention to what's in your awareness, and even the things that don't feel important, get words for them and describe them out loud to another person. Mm. And that simple little thing, which is in community and journaling, you can use the same tools by yourself. Even journaling, journaling helps some, does the language piece. But if you're actually with another human being in community, the whole process works twice as good. Yeah. Um, it, it, you miss Lots of stuff, whether it's half, I don't know how much you miss, but I, I watch myself the way my brain works. And I miss important stuff all the time if I'm just doing it in my own head. If I journal, I catch some more of it. Mm -hmm. Now, if, I'm, if I actually do the prayer with another human being, it, it's, there's just piles of important, subtle stuff that once I get words and, talk, and describe it out loud, all of a sudden I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my gosh, that's an important memory. This is why... I, and that even makes sense. And that's exactly what we were talking about. And like the, the example of, I don't want to go to Indiana. I have no idea why. I just I don't want right. to. Why didn't you go there? And 
I coach you. Okay, well, just notice this kid, just pause. You, you know, whenever, whenever Jeff mentions Indiana, you kind of feel just like, ah, I don't want to. So just say, say, just, okay, what if we do go to Indiana? Okay, right there. And your response is like, no, I don't want to. Okay, just notice, is there any, just notice whatever comes into your awareness. Any thoughts, any images? Oh, I just keep seeing Sandra, Sandra Johnson's face. Oh, who's Sandra Johnson? That horrible girl. Oh, yeah. When you get words for it and say it out loud, all of a sudden, oh my goodness, that's important. That's relevant. That's right in the middle of what, and that's exactly the, that's exactly why I have this intense negative response. Anytime Jeff suggests, let's go visit my uncle in Indiana. Mm -hmm. That piece of brain science is in the middle of the Emmanuel approach. It's a part of what the facilitator coach learns to do. And what we find out there's some people like you, Jeff, who like, they just, for whatever reasons, you know, less of those trauma, anger, distorted perceptions. I'm sure that's part of it. But there's also, again, there's some mystery there where some folks from the age of three, they just say, I've always been aware of God's presence. Yeah. And me from the age of three, I wanted a connection with God and actively pursued it as a preschooler. I mean, before I went to kindergarten, I can remember doing it. I can remember these thoughts. And it never happened, you know, like, like before a lot of the th- memories that I've worked on, yeah. I still wanted the connection and it had no subjective perception. So there's a mystery piece there. And another brain science piece is I'm, well, actually I know this is the truth because I've worked with hundreds of people who they try this kind of exercise and they've gone to retreats, they've gone to all kinds of stuff. They've tried different tools. They say, oh, they did, none of those work for me. Okay, well. I want to try something. Now, first, let's turn your relational circuits on with the positive memory. That's just get your brain in a little bit better space. Now, Jesus, I welcome your presence. Can you help me to perceive your presence? It's not working. Okay, well, so I so nothing dramatic has happened yet. But just for kicks, just humor me. Just notice anything coming into your awareness and describe it out loud to me, whether or not it feels important or makes any sense. And I coach them to do that. I said, well, I, I did just... I, I mean, I thought I was just, I thought maybe it was just my own mind making it up, but I did have a little flicker, kind of a little image of Jesus's face. Mm-hmm. Oh, so well, I guess, and like, oh, and even like in 30 seconds as they start describing it, like, oh, I'm starting to get choked up because I got a little, and I, and yeah, I see he's had this gentle little smile and, and the thought kind of came to me that, well, he's glad to be with me, but there's some things in the way he wants to, I'll coach them, watch for subtle things, get words for them and describe them out loud. I had hundreds, hundreds of people sitting in front of me that initially say it's not working. I don't perceive anything, and I coach them to do those simple little, those two little things. And I, oh, it's not like oh, big blazing, but mm-hmm. they'll ten minutes later with that one little intervention, they'll say, oh my goodness, I think I, I kind of, and and the more they talk about, it, they their emotions connect, and the difference between it works or it doesn't work is that one little brain science intervention. That's another little tap back to your earlier question, Jeff, about where does brain science fit into how come I spent 40 years without this and it just happened all the time for you. That was a little brain science piece that helps my brain. I get dramatically more success experiencing Jesus's living, tangible presence when I include that one little piece. Thanks for listening to the Communitas podcast. We're glad you joined us today for our conversation with Dr. Carl Lehman. In fact, we were having such a good discussion with him that we had to split this episode into two parts. So please join us again next week when we release the second half. If you like this episode, share with friends and subscribe. You can find us on every major podcast platform. See you next week for part two with Dr. Carl Lehman.